0: As Matt said, we are beginning a new sermon series, so if you are new to Stonebrook, you've come at the perfect time for the next 16 Sundays. We're going to go through one of my two favorite books of the Bible, Hebrews. The other, my my top favorite's probably Ephesians, but Hebrews is real close. And so as he said, we have these scripture journals, and it's not too late if you didn't grab one. If you got uh, chatting away, uh, go ahead and grab one right now. I don't mind. Uh, These are just laid out. If, If you're new with us, we've used these before, the Scriptures on the left, and then there's just space for you to take sermon notes or studying at home on your own. And you can buy these if you ever just want to do studying of a book of the Bible. You can just buy them on Amazon. They're really nice. Well, last fall on Sundays, we went through the Old Testament book called Exodus. And Exodus lays out the covenant or the Testament that God made with Israel through the prophet Moses. And we now call it the Old Covenant or the Old Testament because when Christ came to earth, a new covenant was initiated that essentially fulfilled and replaced the old. And we'll talk more about that later in Hebrews chapter 8 in the coming weeks. And the Old Testament was and is not bad. It's the very words of God. It's holy and true. And before time began, God had a plan. He had a plan for this first covenant, and He knew that it wouldn't work, not because He had a problem, but because mankind had a problem. We were the ones who failed, and the covenant wouldn't work because of us. And God knew that, and He had a plan for this new covenant in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I'm excited that we get to follow up Exodus With this series on Hebrews, because we're going to see a flow. It's going to give you the breadth, really, of the entire scripture, I think, uh, does for me, and you'll see how it all really connects well. And there's one plan of God. So this morning, the text is really easy. We're only going to read four verses. But these four verses are not just a typical introduction to a letter like Paul might write to the Ephesians or the Philippians and says, hey, I'm Paul, how are you doing, that kind of a thing. Immediately, these four verses hit the, we hit the gas pedal and accelerate from zero to 60 miles an hour in about four seconds. So you're going to feel the G-forces here as you are confronted with the Son of God. He is no ordinary person. Certainly, he's a great teacher. He's a great moral example. He was perfect. He's a prophet. But he's infinitely, gloriously, eternally more than that. So, open up to Hebrews chapter 1, page 4 in these journals. We're just going to read these four verses Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things and made the universe through Him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he, has in, he inherited is more excellent than theirs. It's I think it's hard to find a more concise, concentrated, weighty truth in four verses than this. They give us really a glorious foundation of the entire book of Hebrews, and actually the entire New Testament. These verses pack in here seven glorious descriptions of the Son of God, of His supremacy, and we are going to see, not only here, but in the days to come, that there is no one like Him. Never has been, never will be anyone like Him. But before we dive into the details here, I want to zoom out a little bit and let's talk about the book as a whole and we'll zoom back in here in a few minutes. First we have this book, it's a, maybe, a, maybe you think it's a strange title, it's called Hebrews, what is that about? Well, I'm not sure how, when it, uh, it originated, but it's, it's possible this, likely it seems, this book was written to Jews who had believed in the Messiah, so they were Jewish Christians or Messianic Jews and Jewish by descent and, or we would call them Hebrew Christians Perhaps that's where the name came from. And they would have grown up in a Jewish culture understanding all about the Old Testament, understanding about the covenant given to Moses and Israel centuries before. But then this Jesus, this long-awaited Messiah comes, and many of these Jews believed in him. And they believed in him. They were walking with him. But then as happens with all of us, life happens, problems happen, persecution comes up. And it seems some of them are wondering, wait, is is all this stuff about Jesus really true? I mean, what about the old stuff? What about Moses? What about all the laws? What about Mount Sinai and and the covenant? Maybe we should go back to those days. Maybe we should go back and hold on to what they had instead of Christ so this book was written to answer those questions with powerful wisdom and authority and urge people hold on to Jesus don't let him go don't go back to those old ways don't reject him because he is the answer the only answer for life If I could give you one word, just one word, and there's a danger in doing this, but if I could just give you one word that would summarize the book of Hebrews, here's that one word. You may want to write it down because you might forget. It's the word better. You won't forget it because you're going to see it multiple times in the book. A one word summary of Hebrews is the word better. The new covenant of Christ, the message of the New Testament. The person of Jesus, the Son, is better than what God gave to Moses. It's better because Jesus is better. In about three fourths of this book, the first nine or ten chapters just hammers on this point. Jesus is better than at least six things. And if you want to write them down, you don't have to, you'll find them in the weeks to come. Chapters 1 and 2, he's better than angels. Chapter 3, he's better than Moses. Chapter 4, he's better than the physical promised land that Joshua took Israel into and the rest that was to be theirs. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, he's better than the priesthood of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. He was the priest to Israel, the mediator, the go-between God and the people. Chapter 8, he's... Christ is, His covenant is better than the covenant that was given to Moses. Chapters 9 and 10, Jesus' blood is better than the sacrificial blood of animals. And all those, all those ceremonial activities that they had, Christ is better. And so because God's plan, this new covenant is so much better, and because it's God's plan, for eternal life with Him, the author of Hebrews frequently has that one message, this one message, and that is, hold on to Christ. Hold on. Keep going. Keep trusting Him. Don't don't turn Him aside. Don't forget about Him. Don't reject Him. And we'll look at that. There's at least five, four or five places where there's a significant energy. The author puts significant energy into calling us to that. It's, it's like he's saying, yes, you're suffering. There's many hardships. You're tempted to turn away. But don't do that. Hold on. Hold on to what you've heard. Hold on to what you've believed. Pay attention to the gospel. Don't harden your heart. And it's, it's not just that he's warning us, you know, don't have a bad day. That's not his point. His point is... Don't just do an about face and reject all that you've believed in, all that you say you've believed. As an aside, one thing I love about Hebrews is that it talks extensively about the Old Covenant. And it talks about things that we learn in Exodus. And if you don't understand the Old Testament very well, hang on for our series because by the time we get done with Hebrews, you're going to understand the Old Testament as well as the New you're going to see these things all come together and we'll grow in our appreciation for how beautiful the entire Bible is. This remarkable plan of salvation that ultimately led us to Christ. Now, the Old Testament and all that God gave Moses was not bad or defective, but again, as I said earlier, the problem was with the people. They needed something different. And God gave this new and beautiful eternal plan of salvation through the Son that now, has now been unfolded and is fully revealed to us. So that's a bit of an overview of Hebrews, and we'll talk more about those things in the weeks to come. But let's get back to our text now in these first four verses. Verse 1 and 2 I think is fascinating. First and importantly... God speaks. You can underline that if you have a pen. God speaks to people. And without that, we would not know anything about God. It is up to Him to speak to us, for us to know Him. He reveals Himself. That's why we call the Scriptures the revelation of God. He makes Himself known to His creatures. And second, it talks about here how He's spoken in the past. In many ways, and many times, God spoke to us, but it was predominantly through the prophets. Prophets like Moses, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Malachi. He did this in a variety of ways, through miracles, visions, and more. But the author here now is saying something is different. Because now in these last days, and I believe what he means by that is that these 2,000 years since Christ, the days... Since the resurrection of Christ until now, these last days, this last age, God is speaking in a different way, and it's through His Son. All the prophets of old pointed to the Son of God. God's Son is the revelation of God. The Son reveals who God the Father is. He reveals His nature, His heart, His attributes, His passions, His deeds. And one thing I find fascinating here, in, not only in this, these four verses, but in this entire chapter, the Son is the only title given to Christ. He's not called Jesus. The name Jesus isn't mentioned until chapter 2. And I think there's a reason for that. Because there's a power, there's an authority built in to the name, the Son of God. The author could have easily said the prophet, which he was. He fulfilled a prophecy back in Deuteronomy. Jesus is a prophet. He is the spokesman for God. But the author intentionally and powerfully points to the Son, a more glorious title And the son now is the complete and final revelation of God to man. So now we should ask, just who is this son? We're going to see we need to hold on to him. Well, who are we holding on to? Who are we believing in? And this is where it gets exciting for me in these seven descriptions here in verses two and three. And each one of these seven, we'll go through them one at a time, it just shouts to us of the greatness of the son that he is better than anything or anyone and I don't think to me it's no accident there are seven descriptions here in various places in the scriptures you see the the number seven it seems to carry a significance of completeness and finality and fulfillment of the things of God and so the son here we could read that as the complete and full revelation of God To the world. So let's look at these seven. The first one in verse 2 is that it says, He's the heir of all things. He's going to inherit all things. He has inherited all things that belong to the Father. The kingdom. Jesus himself, in his last words on earth in Matthew 28 18, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, everything that the Father has, everything that the Father has authority over is now mine. The Father has given the Son authority to rule, to judge, to reward. He's now the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he rules over all things that belong to the Father things in heaven and on earth, and no human authority. No human authority, not a president, not a prime minister, not a king can ever match him. And when he returns, when the son returns to earth in his second coming, he is coming to establish his eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God where all things, including us, will be subject to him. There won't be any caucuses needed, no primaries. No elections. No one's going to vote him in. He inherits all that is the Father's and he will rule over you and over me with all authority for all eternity. You know, when you think about an inheritance uh, on a human level, anything we mere mortals inherit, it's going to fade away in time. And if it doesn't fade away while we're alive, it will fade away from us when we die. We won't take it with us. But the eternal Son inherits all things unfading and forever. And one powerful implication here is that the Son has authority over me and he has authority over you. Even if you don't believe him. He has authority over you. He is my Lord, my ruler, my king. I must obey him and follow him. Another powerful implication is that the Son is the judge of all the earth. Everyone is accountable to Him. I am accountable to Him for my life. You are accountable to Him for your life. And He will judge the world in righteousness and equity. And on that day, at the judgment seat, all wrongs, All wrongs, if they were never even if they were dealt with, but if they weren't dealt with here on earth, they will be made right and perfectly and wholly right before him on that glorious day. So when a follower of Christ is says, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Son, this is the person we trust in, the heir of all things. And our faith is no casual fan following like being a (laughs) Swifty. We follow the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The heir of all things. The second description here is that he's the creator of the universe. He made everything that is seen and unseen. And this is a staggering statement. The Son of God is no created being like angels and humans. He is the Creator. And it's reiterated in verse 10, which we'll look at next week. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, tells us this. Colossians 1 tells us this. Many people in our world, including ourselves, we, we want to understand what are the origins of life? Where did I come from? Why am I here? The scriptures are clear. The answer to those questions is in this person. The son created you. We are here because he made us. And we even get a taste of his creator role, the power and authority he has over creation. We can see it in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 4, I love this story. The disciples are out in a boat. Jesus is with them and he's sleeping in the boat. And this huge storm comes up and the waves are crashing over it. And the disciples are terrified out of their mind that they're going to drown. And so they wake him up and say, Lord, don't you care if we drowned? Don't you care? Don't you love us? And Jesus stands up and he commands the wind and the waves, be quiet. And it just calms down instantly. And the disciples who were terrified of the storm are now more terrified of him because he has power over a terrifying storm. And they said, who is this with us? who commands even the wind and the waves who is this who is this person the implications of the Sun as the Creator are numerous one implication again as as he was with the as we see it with the air that he's the heir of all things is that we're accountable to him the creatures are accountable to the Creator. We will give an answer to Him. And we should ask now, am I prepared to give an answer for how I've lived my life? The second implication is that our purpose comes from Him. Anyone who creates an object, let's say a woodworker, he has a purpose for that object. He has a purpose for crafting a fine piece of furniture. It might just be simply the joy of making a beautiful chair or the functionality and the usefulness of a cabinet. These four verses don't elaborate on what that purpose is that the Creator has for us. We'll see that in the rest of the New Testament. But the reason for our existence must be grounded upon Him. He's the creator of the universe. The third description of the Son in verse 3 is that He's the radiance of the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? It means that as glorious and beautiful and brilliant as the Father is, so is the Son. And He reflects, He radiates that brilliance And during Jesus' earthly ministry, we received a small taste of that glory at what we call the transfiguration. Matthew 17, by the way, I don't have slides because this week on Thursday we thought the projector was broken, it seemed to be, and then about an hour ago it started working and so, uh, anyway, you can look this verse up, you can write it down, Matthew 17, verse 2. Jesus is on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And we read this. It says, He was transfigured. He was changed in front of them, and His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. While He was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Though Jesus was fully human, he was fully divine. And the coming days that awaited him from this moment on in heaven was revealed for a few minutes to these three young men. And it was a terrifying, life-altering moment for them. And what did the father say in his booming voice? Listen to my son. Pay attention to him. Do not ignore his words. And to be terrified at this moment is not the kind of terror like when you watch a horror film, which I don't watch. But that kind of terror comes from evil, comes from the demonic. Here in Matthew 17, there's there's something about the greatness and the majesty of God and the brilliance and the glory that when we are confronted with it, it frightens us down to the core. Overwhelms us in our small, frail, earthly, temporary state. It's otherworldly in the best possible way. And I wonder if it's more like, let's say, standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. You're right at the edge, you're a foot away, and you look down, and it's a mile down and a mile across, and you start to tremble and back away rather quickly. It's a beautiful, glorious moment, but it terrifies you because of its immensity. Perhaps that's a small taste of what it's like to be confronted with the Son, who is the radiance of the glory of God. And like the disciples in the boat, we ask, Who is this? Who is this? And we marvel at Him. The fourth description of the, of the Son is that He is the exact expression of the nature of God what the son represents is the essential core nature of God the father and this phrase is is repeated in colossians or it's very similar in colossians 1:15 it says that he's the image of God the likeness of God and it means here that in every conceivable way Christ exactly represents the father No closer resemblance could be possible. The Son, being divine, reveals to man by his words, by his ways, by his very nature and his power, he reveals exactly what the Father is like. There's a fascinating exchange in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, between the Lord Jesus and his disciple, Philip, who just didn't understand all this yet. Philip says, Lord, uh, John 14, verse eight, Lord, show us the Father and and that's enough for us. Just show us, that'll be enough. And Jesus said back to him, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He's saying, Philip, you don't get it. If you see me, you understand who the Father is. I'm the very nature, the exact representation. And Jesus' words are staggering. No mere mortal could ever say this in any amount of truth or sanity. And if you are a follower of Jesus, and most of you in this room are, you ought to be amazed by him. Because to know Jesus is to know the invisible God. And what a privilege and what nearness we have to the divine. If you are unsure of where you stand with Jesus, but perhaps you're seeking him. Perhaps you're here watching online. You're here because you're curious about who this Jesus is and what Christianity is all about. You don't truly know yet what you believe. When you're confronted here with him, I would just say look to him. Study him. And when you see him, you see the exact representation of the very nature of the invisible God who dwells in heavenly glory. The fifth description of the son is he is the sustainer Of all things by his powerful word. Not only is Jesus the creator of all that we see, he is the sustainer of all of it. He holds it together. And he's not passively watching over this world with his arms folded and saying, Well, now that's curious. He's actively, intentionally, powerfully engaged in this world holding it together keeping it from flying apart the sun is the stability of the universe colossians 1:17 says something similar it says by him all things hold together and how does he do it by merely speaking a word just by uttering a word in the same way that he spoke this world into existence back in Genesis 1 with just a word. So he holds it together. Like with just a word, he calmed a raging storm. It's not hard for him to do this. He doesn't break a sweat. He's not perplexed. The sun speaks and life is held together. If this is true, and I believe it is because I believe the entire scripture is the true and infallible word of God. If this is true, then the power and the wisdom of Jesus Christ is unparalleled and it is stunning. For those of us who follow Jesus, really for everyone, we can get all worried about about the insanity in this world. This world is falling apart, isn't it? The violence, the fighting, the crime, the betrayals, the broken families, the shattered lives. And by the way, this has been going on for thousands of years. It is not just a 21st century United States issue. We can get all worried about the insanity, but do we realize the power of Jesus to sustain us? Even if other things fly apart, do we we understand the power of Jesus with just a word to hold us together? in the midst of the calamity around us. The men and women of faith in the Scriptures understood this. King David wrote a Psalm, Psalm 18 after a time of great stress when the king was trying to kill him. And he concludes in Psalm 18, verse 1. He says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord, listen to this, sustaining power, the stability of God here. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock where I seek refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Like David, we can sing when we look to the sun. For we are looking to the one who has stunning power to create what we see out of nothing. And that same power to hold all things together with just a word. To hold even our own souls together when we feel like we're just going to explode. The Son is the sustainer of all things by His powerful word. The sixth description of the Son is He's the purifier of sins. And now we move from this, what I would say a cosmic scale down to what seems to be to me to be a more intimate, personal scale, a tender scale. He's the purifier of all of our sins. And this simple statement here is really not elaborated on in depth until chapter 9. So you're gonna have to wait a while. But in many ways, this is one of the, the key points of Hebrews. Sin stains. But blood purifies. And only one person's blood can remove our sin stain, and that is the Son of God's. The city of Ames has a wastewater treatment plant that takes the corruption or the pollution or the stain out of water, but it doesn't take it all out. The Son purifies completely, down even to the conscience level, it says, In chapter, it's either eight or nine. For those of you in this room that know Jesus, this is your true hope. Peace with God is yours. Freedom from guilt is yours. Glory is yours because the Son is the purifier of all your sins. For any of you who are still seeking answers to that life but haven't found it yet, look no further. Jesus, the Son of God, is the only one who can take care of your worst problem. You may have many problems, but your worst problem is guilt before God because of sin. The Son is the only one who can deal with that on the deepest permanent eternal level and Hebrews calls us to pay attention to him and warns us that to reject this message will cost us everything the seventh description of the son is that he is seated at the majesty's right hand that's what they, what he calls God is the majesty in many places in the Bible the right hand of God is a position of power and glory And to be seated here implies, he's seated, he's not standing, he's seated, it implies a finality, a finished task, the sacrificial work is done, the exaltation is done. What's interesting is in the book of Hebrews, the word resurrection is never used in association with Christ, but the words are essentially there and it's implied here. The fact that the Son is in heaven. He's been raised from the dead and He's ascended into heaven. And He's seated on His throne at the right hand of power and authority of God the Father. So, let's consider now just in these four verses what we're being told This Jesus, the Son of God, is unlike anyone we have ever heard of or even imagined. Like the disciples in the boat, we ought to ask, trembling, just who is this? Who is this man? He is unparalleled, he is otherworldly, he is divine. He is superior to any religious leader, any prophet, any philosopher. He is better, far better than any other teacher or moral example. And we are going to see every week in this sermon series, in every chapter in this book, that Jesus Christ in His gospel is better. It's better than what Israel had in the law of Moses. It's better than any ancient or modern day religious view it's better because the sun is better and this is why this book urges us five times or more to pay attention to not reject him hold on to what we have do not let our hearts become hardened towards him So let me finish with this. When we see the sun, we have to respond. We can't just read this and move on. We must respond to him. And let me speak for just just a moment to three possible groups of us in this room and watching online. The first group is probably the largest here in this room, and that is those of us who know him. We should be in awe of him. He's not just a casual friend. He is holy. He is glorious. He is powerful. He is otherworldly. And as we progress in the coming weeks, your awe will increase. And none of us should have a small view of Him. Though He took on humanity like us, He was the incarnate God. And we should not view Him in merely, we should view Him in a human way, but not merely in a human way. He is infinitely more and we should hold Him in awe and we should listen to Him. Like the Father spoke in the cloud to the disciples at the transfiguration, we should listen to His words and obey Him and love Him to the end. Second group of us, possible, I'm sure some of us in this room are this way, we're not yet sure who Jesus is and if He's really the big deal that I say He is. This passage in this book is for you. Keep seeking, search for Him. Come with an open heart. Come every Sunday. Listen, learn, absorb, ask questions, study, and consider Jesus. And there might be a third group of us. I hope it's only a few. Those of us who have either rejected already or are on the edge of rejecting the Son. And I don't mean just having a bad day. We all have bad days. We all have our moments of doubt. I'm talking about a full-on rejection like I don't believe any of that. And I don't want any part of him. And we turn our backs and walk the other way. To you, hopefully it's a small group, you are rejecting your creator, the one who sustains all things with a powerful word, who radiates the glory of God, who expresses the very nature of God, who has died to purify your sins. You are rejecting him. And there is a warning ahead for us as we read this book. Do not trifle with Him at the cost of your life. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. And what a glorious, beautiful word we are going to encounter. The Son, sent from heaven, descended to the earth, lived a righteous life, died an unjust death, Rose to immortality, ascended into heaven, and waits to return to reign as the King of Kings. May we pay attention to him and love him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Glorious is your name. Powerful, beautiful. We are amazed by your humility and your compassion to even regard us small and lowly creatures. Yet you made us in your image. A a reflection of yourself is, is in us. Thank you for sending your son. What a remarkable plan you have to purify our souls through him to save us to promise us life forever and ever in glory would you help us to keep our eyes on you and on your son life has a way of distracting us even blinding us from the light of the world help us to have soft humble trusting hearts and respond to your son, the revelation of God for this age and the age to come. It's in the son's name we pray, amen.